I'm going to show you a photograph and I want you to tell me if it looks familiar. Okay. Here's the photograph. Yes, it looks familiar to me. Yeah, at first glance I'd say it was like Patrick Street years ago. Patrick Street, yeah, sort of up the top by Grand Parade as it comes around the corner. Let's look up along HMV, just going straight up along the street. Yeah. Running from the end, I suppose, down by Don Square. Well, I mean, it looks offhand like the corner of Patrick Street. Okay. T talk to me about this building here in the corner. What, what do you think that is? Well, no, offhand I would have said, but of course it doesn't look like it, that this was the path, but it isn't. Upstairs, it just has the similarity of construction there. You and this offhand looks as if it could have been wood for bone. But which is where we're standing here, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm going to show you now where the photograph is actually taken. Castle Place, Belfast. Oh my God. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Looks the exact same. Belfast, oh my God. Yeah. It actually looks very much like Patrick Street. Isn't that incredible? It does, yeah. I was wrong, so was I? <laughs> there are very few people now may get that, unless they're from Northern Ireland. Well, I suppose, if you like to put it this way, the old buildings, there was something similar in shape and size at the time. High buildings. And the curve of the street. And the curve of the street, exactly, yeah. Belfast. Are you surprised? Yes, very, but I haven't been to Belfast. But it does look very similar to... It does indeed. There's some majesty about it that I didn't think they had in Belfast. Okay. Maybe it's all <laughs> shot to pieces now, you know. Having left his native Belfast to study as an architect, Jared Kennedy found himself in Cork in the mid-80s working for the Cork Civic Trust. Here he catalogued and photographed the city streetscapes for the OPW, as well as publishing a book on Cork in his own right. And it was a photograph of 19th century Belfast that caught his imagination, because as we've heard, it has a mirror image down south. It's really easy to see how people have been confused between the photograph of Castle Place in Belfast and Patrick Street here in Cork. I mean, just for example, look over to the corner here. You see the curvature of the building, the Woodford Bourne building, and it's got a plaque, incidentally, uh, for Tom Barry. And as the, as the street sort of sweeps along towards straightening out into Patrick Street, it's just really incredible how similar the two streets are. And of course, here in Cork, we have the river running underneath Patrick Street, the River Lee, and in Belfast, we have the River Farset running under the High Street, which is the continuation of Castle Place. So really, this, the similarities are quite incredible. Gerard Kennedy pointing out the similarities of the urban landscape. But will he find similarities amongst the people? The river at the back, lying in bed at night and here in the water. It was very small, going to sleep to the sound of the water. And I knew that it rained because the water was louder because the river filled. Um, sitting on the backyard step, because it was the sun came that way, in the summer, and the warmth and the heat of the step coming through. Um, stripy railings across my face, and looking at the patterns, that'd be the railings moved in the ground. Like um, coloured water shops, games that were played. Yeah, talk to me about the coloured water shops, because I've mentioned this to a few people, and they think I've you know gone a bit haywire, and we would set our little stall there outside the houses. Oh, coloured water shop, oh yeah, bro. Uh, you got your stall, right? And if you got a wooden crate, it was better. My daddy was into Formica in a big way. It was 60s. And he worked, he was, he was a chair frame maker by trade. So he knocked up this Formica table with these screwing legs. And we would take the legs off to get it through the door and then screw it back up. Because it was great because you could spill water on it. Formica was everywhere in our house. And coloured water shop, major. Um, beetroot. It was always in the summer because mummy made salads. So the beetroot juice, 
poured into a bottle. I'm selling milk bottles. She kept milk bottles for us. And you had red jewel-like water. And then cold tea made golden water. And then found he- the Hector's and got the cheap paint. Hector's. Hector's. Yeah. That's, what I, that's what those French <clears throat> from. And you made your colours up. And you, you tried to get it black. Did you ever use crepe paper? Oh, I soaked it and wrung it out. And it was got up your hands and everything. With tissue paper. You, I mean, you tried anything. Really, I mean, I remember um, putting my brother's socks in hot water, <laughs> trying to get the colour, to get dark green, ming. But you don't, you did sold your granny to get a new colour. That's right. The whole idea the whole was idea, to create a new colour. Yeah, you went down the street to the next stall and said, that's an unusual colour. And you, that's right, you bought the, yeah, and yeah. it was dear. If, and it was only a wee teensy, if you only had to like extract, extract so much juice out of something or colour, that was dead dear, that's dead dear. And, and then you had to, what you did? forget it my sister she smashed a really good saucer because if you had Delph Delph was your barter was your money plain ordinary glass is bog standard so you walked about the street and you collected in a bag bits of glass right but a really good value for money was a piece of Delph with a pattern on it she broke a really good saucer like the china cup set up my china dish when neighbours visitors came <sighs> right the back the smithereens and then she teased everybody do you like one? My brother loved cement. He used to brush the dirt up and go and get water. And um, one day, my mother, God bless her, must have had it. We, between running in for water, for coloured water, and just the whole thing, she says, you're not getting any water. So he went out and he paid in it instead. And I thought, that's really clever. I had a little, I was disgusted. And then our appalling was a wee bitch. I wouldn't have done those things, really wouldn't have done them because I was too ladylike. She didn't care. She got the lollipop stick and she mixed it up. And they all, everybody came around to look at it because it was made out of our Tony's piddle. He piddled in that. But I hate you telling that story because it's nice. He's a civil servant. Civil servant. Civil servants probably do do that in the privacy of their own homes. But um, he uh, he was marvellous. He was bright. He ginger hair and freckles. He was a really a social embarrassment to us. I miss the sound, particularly of the, of the games, the street games. I'm always working in Cork City, you know, for 45 years, uh, going around visiting areas. And I just miss the noise of the, the clapping of a rope, the rolling of a bicycle wheel, the clatter of a can doing release, and the, uh, glassy alleys hitting off each other. But in the olden days, I used to have hoops out here, bicycle wheels, I and hoops. I'd have yeah. the children playing around the lock with them, and we'd have skipping rope, cat and dog, and what's, hoops. What's cat and dog? Cat and dog was a great name, a great name altogether. It was played with a small little bit of stick that was paired at both ends to make it pointy, as we'd say here, mm-hmm. but pointed. And then you had another stick, which was the beater. That was the cat. You know, the, and Sorry, the cat was the small one, the, the dog was the longer one. And you had a little target uh, drawn out with chalk on the ground, and you pitched the cat towards it and you struck it with the dog and hit it away and however far you could hit it away you then nominate three jumps or four baby steps or some there was a whole scissors there was a whole lot of designations of names and distances and if you jumped from the target to where the cat was you won and then you were in again and if you didn't make it you were out then and the, the next person had their turn all the street games were very sporty. Everybody got their turn, whether they were small or big or young or old. Uh, so it was all very fair. Great leveller. All very fair. You know, you know the hoop game? Oh, yes. Isn't yeah. that the funny story about the little boy who goes with the hoop to the oh, shop? Oh, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, the, the, both the 
the offer that he went to his mother, sent him down to the shop. And he said, Mammy, should I take your hoop? She said, and you won't be long. But he took his hoop down and he went into the shop and he stood the hoop outside, like a Rolls Royce, up against the wall, with a stick laying on the top of it. When he came out, the hoop was gone. And he was started crying. And there, there was a poor lady there. And she said, what's wrong with your wife? He said, somebody stole my hoop. Oh, she got help but She said, you know, see, I'll have to walk home. We're sitting, of course, here in the, in the English market, which I don't know of many cities that have a place like this. Thankfully, it was restored superbly. And uh, this space has been commented on by many people. Well, it's a very cosmopolitan market, isn't it? It's very cosmopolitan. And I'm just thinking again back to earlier days, it has moved on and there's, there's much more produce here now. Uh, exactly. Oh, it's much more unique. And uh, actually, it really is quite sophisticated, and yet it has not divorced itself from, from the basic Cork way of things. You know, as an architect coming from Belfast in the early 70s, what were your first impressions when arriving in Cork City? Well, I remember the first day we arrived, and it was freezing cold. We stopped outside the Victoria Hotel, and my wife said, look, let's have a cup of tea, and we went in, and we found a most unique situation where there was a large room with uh, middle-aged ladies dressed in white aprons, serving at white linen cloth tables, something that was quite unique. I think the feeling, the city itself, is in wonderful scale to the people that live within it, and that's why I feel there's this wonderful, cosy feeling to live within a city like Cork. Its medieval centre is quite unique in terms of the shape of the streets, and of course the waterways that existed within the actual sandbanks that were here before the, this portion of the city was born uh, have been responsible for the shape and the whole environment that we're experiencing within the city. And um, it impressed on me that uh, it was a village rather than a town. But I found uh, at the beginning a bit strange. But I know from the Cork people that once you get over the initial stage, they're tremendous people altogether. Um, my wife and I used to come down in the evening and walk around the centre of Cork just to window gaze, because in Belfast it was impossible at that time with all the trouble that was going on, it, was, it just wasn't on. And you couldn't so get into the city centre because it was barricaded off. After exactly. 8 o'clock it was all... Exactly. But... Um, I feel, I feel Cork is wonderfully scaled to the people in it. I think it, it has an all-year-round Christmassy feeling. Well, it wasn't very much of a place in my youth because we were recovering. The border had just been laid down, you know. And my recollection of it is that it was very, very Irish in those days. I lived in an area that was, was quite orange. Indeed, Carson, Lord Carson took that title from where I lived. His title, when they, when they gave him a peerage, was Lord Carson of Duncairn. And uh, not many people know that. It was very a very Irish place. I don't know whether it was the effect of my own family circumstances because my mother was a product of a mixed marriage and her mother was Protestant, her father was Catholic. So the girls were brought up in those days in the faith of the mother and the boys in the faith of the father. So I had Catholic uncles and cousins and uh, they talked to us about things that weren't common property in the street. I mean, they talked to us about hurling and... Uh, uh, the, uh, the three brothers from my mother would call in on a Sunday morning with their kids and uh, one of them, James, who was a bit of a wit, 
And he would say, do you know, Lizzie, there was a bloody missioner in there this morning in St. Patrick's, and uh, he did nothing but shout his head off about drink, he said, and I was in the club until two o'clock this morning, my head was opening and closing. <laughs> that's a very Belfast saying, opening and closing your head. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the head was flying off me, <laughs> you know. And uh, I would listen to this as a wee boy of seven and eight and nine. But then, of course, when I went out into the street, I was told that the St. Patrick's Church, St. Patrick's Catholic Church, the, only, the thing that mainly went on there was that the priest was up in the pulpit telling them all to vote against the Unionist Party. <laughs> and I was said, I wonder how they find time to talk about the drink, you know. <laughs> and if half of these people are sitting with their heads open and closing, I don't think they'll be listening to much about politics, you know. <laughs> what was it like growing up uh, in a mixed family in, in those years? I wasn't aware of it. My, you see, my mother never actually sat down and said to us, listen, son, you are in a, uh, an odd situation. She never did. We were left to find it out. I, I wandered into uh, my uncle's house, my uncle Thomas. He was a docker and an alcoholic. Dockers were paid daily in the pub, and uh, they, they were largely alcoholic. I wandered into his house, and this is a house where my mother grew up. Uh, there was a picture in the wall of my mother's mother, and it used to fascinate me. I got up on a chair... And I used to look at her lovely soft eyes and wonder how she died and everything. And there was an old oak drawer, and I, pu- I pulled it out one time, rummaging through the place on my own, and I found these beads. And I held, I remember I held the beads up in front of my grandmother and uh, to see if it suited her and everything. And I think that's lovely. It's a lovely wee cross the bottom. It just suits her nice. And I was holding them up as if they are around her neck, you know. And I came back and I mentioned this to my mother, and as soon as I mentioned it to my mother, she said, shh. That's all she did. I remember talking about it to Jim. He was older than me. He said to me, you're stupid or something. They're Catholics were crazy, you know. They were rosary beads. They were rosary beads. But it was never actually explained. I remember running into the house all excited after playing up the park. My mother was there and my uncle James. My mother says, well, what, what's going on? I said, you should have seen up the park. A wee boy fell out of a tree and I think he broke his leg. And uh, my uncle James says, Did it, was it... Was it was he crying? Was he hurting? I says, no, he didn't cry. I said, he was a wee fiend. <laughs> I was hitchhiking with an Oiga. I got a lift. It was a very uncomfortable drive because I didn't realise at the time I was sitting on a revolver. Uh, and Mr <laughs> McAteer asked me to put it into my, uh, into my, under my jacket behind, you see, because we had to stop, naturally, when we went up to Newry. I left him there and said goodbye and headed off for Belfast. And I was picked up two or three times by the B-Specials, or the RUC, who made me empty my uh, haversack mm. in the middle of the road, and then they drove off and left me to put it back in, my yeah. stuff back in again. And then when I went around the next corner, they were waiting again for me, and they did the same operation, emptied everything out on the road. It was the morning after Gough Barracks in Omaha had been raided. And anybody who was like me uh, with a southern accent, and particularly at the time, I didn't realise the significance. I had a Blackberry, which was very handy for travelling, you know. Uh, but that's a cap. military uniform. Yeah. I didn't know that <laughs> at the time. And they gave me quite a doing off until eventually I said, well, to blazes with this. And I got a bus into Laganil. And I arrived at your place, Castle Junction, where I got a bus up to the Falls Road up to meet my friend Lionel Mallard. And when I got on the bus, the, or a tram rather, the, the tram conductor said to me, there's great 
crowds up the falls. He said, would you go upstairs and you could have, a, you'd see better. Anyway, he says, would you take off that berry and put it in your pocket? <laughs> and he says, and you didn't know why, what he was I talking about. I didn't know about. why. And, he, and further, he said, take off that pioneer pin. Uh, I was from Turf Lodge and he had a particular hatred of people from Turf Lodge. Yeah. And, and remember he had that kind of odd blackboard in his class, which was on a kind of rulers. And, and it had it, uh, music staves on it. That's it, yes. Yeah. And uh, then he, he brought down one uh, level of it to show us that it was ripped. I don't know if you remember this at all. It had been cut and he said, a boy from Turf Lodge did that. <laughs> and uh, so, as I say, he, had, he made all the, all the boys from Turf Lodge in the class stand up in this kind of stuff. And it was as if we were kind of you know, held up to public was, kind of scrutiny was... and, and ridicule, you know, on the very first day at school. But, it was um, racism. Indeed, indeed. Remember he tried to teach us to play the recorder. That's right. Um, <laughs> but he didn't have enough recorders to grind all the boys. So um, some pencils. of us... That's right. Some of us had pencils. <laughs> all the boys in Turf Lodge had pencils. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You were always kind of very well turned out, you know, absolutely perfect. You know, his mother obviously kind of insisted that he, you know, wash behind his ears every day and, and so on and so forth. And it was always kind of... All books were always very neat and et cetera, et cetera, like most of us, you know. Yeah. And uh, I remember this particular day, um, for some reason, I can't quite remember why, but I lifted up a bag and threw it across the, the yard. And, in fact, it turned out to be your briefcase. And in the briefcase was, of course, a bottle of ink. And this went flying, the, the, the case went flying across the yard and then smashed, and the ink was broken and obviously covered all your books and so on, and... Um, you rightly um, uh, drew this to the attention of Brother Eustace, um, who not only kind of severely beat me for this, but also insisted on seeing my mother. And uh, so she was summoned, and uh, I got uh, enormous grief from my um, older brother, who had been at the school as well, and thought this was a kind of... um, you know, a real blue, you know, to the you know, to the family kind of <laughs> reputation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because he had had no trouble in school, and you know, uh, my mother has never been summoned. But our whole goal in life was to go to Clonard Dance. It was Clonard Dance, there was St Gauls, and it was Fertile Tennis Club, which I never got my backside in because it was too posh. St Gauls, you had to walk past the ghosts. Do you remember going down and coming out, we would always hide, the boys would always hide behind. Tell me about it, <laughs> the gravestones. But you have to remember the 70s at platform shoes. I had six inch heels up to there and maxi skirts. I mean, you're talking at platforms to there. And you had to walk up this road, and it was all... Horrible, and then he couldn't do really good dancing in, Clon- in St Gauls because the floorboards were creaky. For Clonard Hall, it was class. But we used to go to Clonard Hall on a Saturday, and there were certain groups danced to certain records. And my friends, my twin friend's brother, danced to Slade. And he had the big braces. He lived his life just to dance to Slade. He was 17, and he used to put, we used to go down by sequins for him for the hut. And they shot him. When he was that age, they shot him and his brother. And it was a funny... They were a family with a past, and he had this half-brother called Eric. And they got up one morning, as teenagers do. Michael wouldn't get up out of the bed, apparently. And the father lost the bop. He was the four-man builder. And he walked on ahead, and Eric got Michael up, and they walked on behind. They got as far as Northumberland Street. There were two boys brushing the street. And they didn't shoot the daddy. The daddy had walked on, maybe the timing wasn't right, but they shot Eric and Michael dead. 
And every Christmas when I hear Slade, it kills me. I even get annoyed thinking about it now. Because all he wanted to do, he wasn't a boy throwing the gun on the wall. There was no politics. All that guy wanted to do was get his money and dance to Slade on a Saturday night. And Clonard, Clonard ceased. The times when the, the magic went away. The guys around the rye would go for a dance as well. Active service guys would be up near the exit door. They had to get out quickly. And on a Sunday night, we'd go to the adult dances for staters. And the army came in. And they jumped up. You know, you'll understand this. They jumped up on the tables. And they had rubber bullet guns. And the walls, remember cluttered walls? They were brick. But they were brick with angles on them. And I remember thinking... If they shoot one of those guns, the angle, the brick angle on the wall, that bullet's going to ricochet. They're going to kill somebody because this is going to ricochet off these angles in the wall. And they were going to strip search and do everybody in the place. There was a coffee bar hatch like that and two doors. Jerry O'Neill and Rusty McCarthy. And I remember Ailish came from the Kashmir Road and she waved to her leabat. She used to scare you when they were ranting. Big military police woman says, we're going to strip search you. And she says, they says, I'll tell you what, you can go first. And the next minute all I saw was the blouse of the MP coming off. And they jumped in the MP and they ripped the clothes off the MP. And I could see it was her underwear. And I'll never forget it. Ian McCarthy said, that's it. And they put us up like that. And they fed us. They fed the women and the girls through the, the hatch of the coffee bar. Of course, the word was out there and had surrounded Clonard Hall. And my mother got her coat on. We were all singing, we shall not be moved, we shall not, we shall not be moved. And they were all saying, no, we're not going to get strip searched. We are not going to get searched. And we wouldn't get searched. And I heard my mother see her search her now. And I was Ursula. I'm going to get searched. I was more scared of my mother than I was of the situation in the hall. We were, by that stage, in 2A. And one of the brothers came along uh, on the first day at school, we were all lined up at those arches, at the pillars, and pointing to the line beside us said, is that to be? And um, Kieran Doherty immediately kind of said, to be or not to be, that is the question. And I must say, I thought that that was very, very clever, you know, for a kind of, you know, I suppose a 12-year-old. And, yes. and, uh, and well, needless to say, as, as we know, uh, Kieran Doherty starved himself to death on hunger strike during the, the hunger strikes in 1981. I suppose, you know, uh, the, the sort of public face, you know, of, of people involved in the IRAs, kind of, you know, thoughtless terrorists and so on and so forth. Yet, obviously, when you kind of grow up with people, you have a different perspective. Sure. And, and, uh, and it's really extraordinary, actually, the number of people, our school friends, who did get involved. Mm. Yes. Um, and sometimes I feel like a traitor because I didn't and I left, decided that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I know there are quite a lot of people have yes. since died. Yes. And quite a lot of people have been locked up mm-hmm. for... Yes. Long periods of time. Yes. I don't know if you remember a man called Paul Best uh, in the class. Yeah. Yes, um, he people tended to bully him because he was not exactly an effeminate child, but I mean he was certainly very thin and so <laughs> he was on. Very and, awkward. And he was slightly <laughs> awkward and uh, and so on. But uh, he subsequently became involved in Sinn Fein and was actually shot dead in the inter IRA feud, uh, if you remember, between the yeah. official IRA and and the provost. Uh, when he, in the course of he was selling, you know, Republican news or something, so he's not actually a kind of you know hardcore, um, but just involved in the political aspects of it. And, and uh, yes, and again, um, it's it's one of the kind of the striking things, or rather, kind of unassuming. And you know, a, a guy who was bullied at school. In fact, his parents moved him from the school because of bullying.
lot of it was set in Belfast because I think at a time when the IRA had declared a ceasefire, and I actually met some lovely Northern um, Protestants in, in, in Dublin, and they were saying geographically in Cork we were very lucky, uh, you know, there was no real trouble. And I uh, said I would write this book uh, based in Belfast, but I had never been to Belfast. So I you know, got a big, huge map, and a friend of mine was from Belfast, and uh, I'd be over in his kitchen a lot of nights, uh, so I, people... When they read it, they thought I had been in Belfast, you know. It's very impressive. But there's, there's one, um, I tried to get a, a nice pub, like where the, the main character in it is an ex-SES guy, and I chose White's Tavern. Now, I on knew, High Street. On High Street. Now, I knew nothing about the pub, so I, I rang, rang the bar up one night, you know, and the barman answers, oh, White's Tavern. So I said, uh, kind it's of very a, good Belfast Oh, accent. great, yeah. He says, uh, um, I'm, I'm ringing from Cork, they kind of, uh, would you describe the bar for me? And fair play, he... Um, he told me there was a big open fire, and if you look out the window, the, you could see two giant cranes, it seems, in the, in the docks, and they were Samson, Samson and Goliath, Goliath and I had right, the, yeah. the, 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 the relevant heights of them and all, you know, two big giants. When you rang the pub gym in Belfast, you have this Cork accent, he had a Belfast accent. Was he suspicious? He was, for a little while he was, yeah. He was kind of, a, he was slow to tell me first, you know, I mean, I could have been casing the giant or whatever you know but he was very nice yeah he was really when i told him look i i said you can ring me back if you like i said i'm a writer i'm trying to write a book and fair play he um described the pub like it seemed like a lovely pub it's lovely well it was on some brochure i had seen in in the travel agent or something you know so it must be a lovely pub the cork accent's totally different to the belfast accent when i came here it was very difficult for me to understand and to be understood how did you understand the uh, the guy in the pub he had a nice, uh, nice kind of. Well, I had some good friends uh, from Belfast. I had a g- great friend I met every day, a uh, Belfast lady. She had a lovely, soft northern accent, more like a kind of a Donegal accent, you know. The the Belfast accent wouldn't be as soft, I I think, would it? As the it's, Donegal it's accent, harsh. it can be harsher. Yeah, you yeah, know. That's right. Um, that's right. But I I kind of I I spoke slowly. <laughs> <laughs> you had to. <laughs> I had to. I think yeah. But uh, as I say, it was a very Irish place and this surprised people because we listened to uh, the Dublin radio station, which wasn't called RTE, it was called Dublin Athlone in Cork. And we could say that in Irish. We couldn't have written it down. But in the street, I mean, it was quite common. Uh, Our favourite comedians were Jimmy O'Day and Harry O'Donovan, who did sketches on crossing the border. Now, the border was a novelty. So it was a, a matter for fun. Jimmy O'Day would be saying, the man would say, have you anything to declare? And he would say, I declare, I don't, you know. <laughs> and then just with that, the alarm clock would go off that he had come up the border to buy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that we knew that. Everything going on in the South. There was a man in the South who used to tip horses, and my mother would write the names down for, for uh, my brother, my elder brother, who was lost in the war. He liked the back horses, and she would say, the man from Dublin, Athlone and Cork tips such and such a one today, you know, and he would write it down. And we knew, that, we knew all the Gaelic football stars and Gaelic hurling stars. And, and it was the same out in the street outside. Something happened, I would say, around 1930 to 31. Something happened. Even I understand there was more liberality at Stormont in those days. There was a disappointment that the nationalists hadn't come in to take their part in the Stormont government. And they, they they did try and invited them in and so on, James Craig and so on. They tried to get the nationalists in, but then a hardening seemed to come around and as the thirties turned, and that's that's when the cardinal said that Protestants were not a part of the Church of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, that was when the lever really began to come on to the Catholics and jobs and everything else, because of a perceived threat that uh, 
if we didn't do to them, they would certainly do it to us type of thing, you know. From that on until the present time, it baffled me completely why so many Protestants denied that they were Irish. You know, people who live in a place called Ballymacarrot and people in Ballinafai or the Shankill would deny that they were Irish. I can understand now why a certain number of them will be because of the activities of the provost. The, the argument is if the provost are Irish, you can keep it. My brothers and myself played cricket, but we did because my older brother had learned to play cricket when he was in England, and he brought this tradition back, and we got very excited about it. But we used to study all that. We used to listen to all the cricket matches coming from England, Len Hutton and Dennis Compton, all these wonderful figures. How did then person from the Nationalist Falls Road <clears throat> from St Paul's area play cricket with what was predominantly uh, a, a Protestant well, what, what we did, What we did was we, we put together a team. Now, a lot of the fellows so did, didn't, didn't know how to play cricket, but we, we drafted them in anyway. There was good hurley players too, you see. We had four boys in our house, so all of them could play. And uh, we formed a team and entered the Belfast Cricket League, and we were the only Catholic team in the Belfast, we were called Springville and we had this unique situation where we were actually on the Belfast Telegraph with Springville versus Visnage, Springville versus all and these... Springville the, presumably the, was from the Springville Road. Something box company you know, these <laughs> marvellous things and we, we, everything boiled itself down to, to the politics there was a man called, and you won't believe this fellow was called Mr Willick he was a manager in this something box company and they were playing against us. And all these, all the rest of the team were bowing and scraping to Mr Willick because he was the manager or the boss or something. And Mr Willick fancied himself as a batsman. And Mr Willick was about that size and he came in with a pair of pads up to his neck. And he walked <laughs> well in and he, he stood up and he took the thing from the umpire. And, the, <clears throat> and then my older brother, Jared, who was an extremely fast bowler, he was the one that taught us all. The speed that he could hurl the ball was at like 140 miles an hour. <laughs> Mr. Willick, you know where? <laughs> Mr. Oh, yeah. Willick was flat on his back, and the whole team had to carry Mr. Willick off. <laughs> we thought we had won that night. <laughs> At least we had made a mark. We were the enemy. There was no question about that. We were known. So did that make the game more exciting? And oh, more, more so exciting! Oh God, yes. yes. It was your, your, your life. You had to be careful. You had to find out where you were going to play because they were all over the city. You see. I'll tell you better than that. I marched in the twelfth of July period. I played the pipes in Castleton Temperance Pipe Band. I joined a band about uh, when I was about 12, learned the pipes and uh, marched with the juveniles on Easter Tuesday. And I marched at elections, uh, at election time at Stormont. In those days, at, at night time, the election marches, you know, ahead of everything, there were men carrying poles with lanterns on top, you know. It was a bit like Africa at night, you know, in Zulu. Went through the darkened streets with all these <laughs> lanterns burning, you know. Well, anyways, I felt great. Well, my father came home from sea, and I would have been about 16 and 17. And I was marching with the Castleton Temperance Pipe Band, and I said to my father, he was hardly ever home for the 12th, you know. I said, I'm marching with the band, he'd like to come up and come on, and you'll see me. And he saw me going with the band past it, and he, he was uh, a man who didn't go in for lavish praise, you know. He didn't use one word where no words at all would do, you know. <laughs> so I was really keen to get his approbation. And I said, did you see me marching with a band? I was in the front row on the right. He said, yes, I did. He said, where did you get the Western Ocean roll? <laughs> I'd just be swaggering past him with the bagpipes, you know. And I played the pipes in the Air Force when I was in Iraq for the first year or two because if you were 
a piper or a musician of any sort, you wore a badge and you didn't do fatigues if you, if you had a badge. And when I came back, they came to me to join the senior orange order. And on account of what they'd given me during the war, I said, yes, OK. And it, I was made into the orange order. And the first meeting that I went to, I was anxious to hear anything I could about politics. I really knew nothing about politics. I didn't know much about socialism or conservatism or nationalism or anything else. And I thought, here, go, I'm going to hear the orange side of things tonight, you know. And you know all they talked about? Most of them worked at the docks. And in those days, they still had horses pulling, pulling the goods from the docks. All they bloody well talked about was horses. Feeding the horses down at the, after the day, and a horse dropped dead in Meta Street, and what a job they had getting it carted away. And uh, I learned a word then that I've stayed uh, fondly ever since Martingale. One fellow says he was just in the Martingale, and I thought, what the hell's a Martingale, you know? Whenever that song came out, I was going along saying, When a Martingale sang in Barclay Square. <laughs> Those are the real words. <laughs> And I never went back, and that's the truth of it. Corpus Christi was the feast of the body and blood of Christ, and it was always on about the middle of June. I was very small. I was six years of age. I had just made my communion, and I was recruited to wear a white pants and a white shirt and a velvet, red velvet cape around my shoulders. I felt like Lar Fantleroy <laughs> going down, walking backwards down past my own house, strewing flowers because roses were gathered and the petals were stripped into baskets. And the, there were about 12 of us uh, recruited from the north side, naturally from uh, the North Man and uh, Easton's Hill School and Blarney Street School. And did every one of the 12 wear the red cape? Ex- yeah, no, there might have been a slight variation in the colours because they were handed <laughs> down from year to year. So some they of them had faded. Slightly faded and some of them were a rather plum colour. You know, somebody had decided a lovely a remnant here and they'll make the a cape. <laughs> and a bit, uh, a little bit of gold braiding maybe on it which would make a really uh, deluxe and we'd walk backwards from the cathedral uh, in front of the monstrance now I have photographs inside in 1936 when I was throwing the flowers and you did feel it even though you were very small you were very proud but you might be a little bit self-conscious you know because you were passing all a lot of your schoolmates at any dressed up like uh, look at him you know the um, procession was a wonderful affair because everybody went to the procession. Now, the women lined the sides of the street all the way down and it was very reverential. People joined in the hymns and the priest walking down on the side before you came near the city, you know it is an island city, and when they were coming down, they would recite the rosary. Everybody would answer it and you would hear it echoing all over the place. And then... You would then hear three taps on a big drum and the local band, the Butter Exchange, the Working Men's Band or the uh, Barrack Street Band would start playing some of the old hymns and uh, the people would join in. And the Corpus Christi procession drew out the best of the people of the city and surrounding. They all decorated their houses. They put up flags, bunting, they had little altars, to, uh, altars in the windows, all the shops downtown. All the little laneways around would have their own collective altars and they'd all gather flowers for them. And the little girls and the bigger women in the place, it was their job to uh, decorate the place. 
but the men might go out with buckets of whitewash and whitewash the surround of where the altar was to be. And when the procession was over, groups of people would walk around various parts of the city admiring all the ones there, and they all had lovely altars too, and we'd be delighted with it. Factories closed, everything closed for the fortnight. It was called the 12th fortnight. So what happened when Mommy and Daddy had enough money to saved up for a mobile home in Bettystown? And that had a Ford Prefect car, it was 40 quid, and it was black and shiny, and we loved it. And this is the truth, when we got down to the border, all the windows went down. <laughs> and my granny would say, breathe in God's free air. And we didn't, we get it into your lungs, you're in the free state now. <clears throat> I swear, and that was every time we went. And then we'd go back up, close those windows up, around that black north. Did you ever go to the parades themselves? No, I lay in bed at night and heard the drums and it scared me. The lampeg drums scared me, even before the troubles. Because where we sat in the dip, the whole height up the Springfield Road, Shankill, the wind carried the lampegs. And it was very, very intimidating. To this day, the lampeg drum scares me. And my friend, uh, my very good friend Liz, her, uh, she uh, comes from the Protestant community. Um, and I was upstairs with her in a huddle. The lambegs, and I said, Your Jesus, Liz, every time I hear those hairs in the back of my neck, they scare me. And she says, Do you hear the rhythm? I says, No, there's no rhythm. No, that's not, there's no rhythm. And I was angry. I said, There's no rhythm. That's just badness. And she says to me, No, there's a rhythm. And she beat the rhythm out for me. And now I can hear the rhythm. And I know that it's an art form. For me, for what I feel, I don't feel that it's beat for the rhythm, it's beat for the intention to intimidate and that doesn't come from my political sense that comes from my childhood fear but we were Catholic and Catholics don't hate and Catholics are Christian and you turn the other cheek and you give your penny on a Friday to the black babies and it, you, if you have two coats you give one away and if you have two dolls and there's a child doll and you were a greedy cat so it was guilt all the way guilt, 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 guilt you know. and Catholics don't hate so therefore you didn't hate but you could be afraid when Corpus Christi came around, uh, the women in the lane, there was a well at the top of the lane, Fahi's well, and they got buckets of water, all the women, and they religiously scrubbed down every inch of the lane for Corpus Christi, like the, the strength of, 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 of religion, I suppose, at the time, you know, and the importance and the strength of the church. And, so you, and you know, that's what used to happen in Belfast. In Belfast, the big thing was the 12th of July. It, it would be, uh, surely. But the Protestant women would also be outside their doors scrubbing half-moon shapes in the pavement. It would be scrubbed white. Why half-moon? Is that a Protestant symbol in any way? I don't know. <laughs> you mean like, like the red, white and blue pagan? No, no, I, it was just, just a lovely half-moon shape, yeah. like a mat. Yeah. You know, and then they would put red, <coughs> red tile stuff, you know, polish on the yeah. step. And, I mean, everything would be glittering. It was huge, like, yeah. Like a Corpus but the Corpus Christi was, and like everybody went... Every man, especially like, but no, it has faded dramatically. Uh, another memory, maybe uh, from Washburn Lane, which would sum up uh, those times, was um, <clears throat> a neighbour got married. This young girl got married, and she she walked in her her wedding gown. She walked down Washburn Lane, knocked at a door of a friend, um, Sissy Carson, a very northern name. She borrowed her wedding ring and went down to the North Cathedral and got married. Now, there was about 20 of us little boys, like it was like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, behind her. She got married and walked back up with her husband, returned the wedding ring, and went into her house for and had a bit of a hoolie. <laughs> they, they were such, I suppose, such practical times. My brother took his family and went down to live in Cork, 
and so invited me to to go down and I spent I don't know maybe six or eight weeks of that summer so it was the summer of 1977 you know when Elvis died I spent whatever it was six or eight weeks actually working in uh, uh, pizza land in Cork. Do you remember anything about the centre, the, the sort of main shopping area? Well, the, the sort of pizza land place was near there. Is it kind of Patrick Street? Mm. Yeah. And um, yes, I remember that. And I suppose part of the thing that does strike one is that it's a very Catholic city, if you see what I mean. Um, you know, in in contrast to to Belfast, which is quintessentially a Presbyterian city. How did you deal with the language when you arrived in Cork? Because the, there's a certain accent. Mm, and yes. they speak very, very quickly. Yes, yes, it's true. Well, I'm, I'm sure they, they thought exactly the same about me, you know, that, that I speak very quickly and very odd, but it is a sort of very sing-songy type of accent and, and does strike one as kind of slightly funny to listen to. Obviously, you know, we, we speak um, English um, for the most part as our, as our first language. And, um, but to hear somebody from Cork speaking English, it doesn't sound right, if you see what I mean. Um, but oddly enough... I, I I was listening to uh, in this college just recently. Uh, we had we have mass in Irish uh, once a week, and this guy from Cork reading Saint Paul's letter to the Romans in Irish, and it struck me as you know absolutely spot on. You know this is what this is why we have the accent. You know that we have it is to speak in Irish, not in English. That's um, Patrick Street, isn't it? Go around a bit. When is that Prince Street up here on the right? Not a while. Just around that area. That's right. Okay, I'm going to That's show right, you where, yeah. the, where the photograph was actually taken. Was it? My God, I just imagine. Can you see the, t- the title there at the bottom? Belfast. Well, my God, above it. But now the buildings, I, I didn't, but say maybe to say before my time, you know, for way more in common with Belfast than we thought. Mm-hmm. Not than we thought. Uh, there you are. <laughs>